Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. We are heading to a summer fuel shortage worse than the 1970s. That's the dire warning as Europe pulls the plug on the majority of Russian oil. One is looking at a different era now in terms of pricing around fossil fuels. The war has really exacerbated this. The operator of Dublin Airport says they can't guarantee we won't see similar scenes of chaos this bank holiday weekend. And the mental health crisis in the travelling community was laid bare at a protest outside the Doyle today. I had 29 members of my family died through suicide uh, in the last 10 years. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. We are heading into rocky territory. That was the warning from Taoiseach Michael Martin over high energy prices for the next few years. It comes off the back of the EU's decision to ban two-thirds of Russian oil, the newest round of sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Here's EU chief Ursula von der Leyen. Yesterday, in the middle of the night, we decided then to have a ban now on de facto 90% of Russian oil imports to the European Union by the end of the year. And this comes at a time when we see that Russia has disrupted supplies to by now five member states. But as we know, every action has a reaction and turning off the taps from Russia is going to mean a shortage of fuel in the continent. The head of the International Energy Agency says this shortage could be worse than the dark days of the 1970s. And there was more stark news on the inflation front. New EU figures show Ireland is now sitting on a figure of 8.2%. All that led the Taoiseach to warn that we are in a new era when it comes to high energy prices. One is looking at a different era now in terms of pricing around fossil fuels. The war has really exacerbated this um, and created huge pressure. We will do everything we can to alleviate the pressures on consumers. Uh, but if you look at the our EU power um, initiative and communication, it's very, very clear that if you reduce permanently Europe's dependence on Russian gas and oil, that has implications for the global market over time. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Kira Phelan, political correspondent at the Irish Mirror, Green Party TD, Marco Cahasi, Independent TD, Michael Healy-Ray, 
and CEO of Fuels for Ireland, Kevin McPartlin. You're all very welcome to the programme. Akira, I want to start with you and those um, estimates from Eurostat looking at inflation, the highest since records began, I believe, and rising, it would appear, at a quicker rate even than this government would have anticipated six weeks ago. Yeah, definitely some very startling figures out today that show energy prices, um, inflation uh, is skyrocketing. Energy was estimated to be up 8.2% um, in May and actually an increase on year on year rise was 46%. And as you mentioned, I don't think the government actually anticipated how quickly this increase was going to happen. And obviously with what had happened in uh, uh, the EU decision last night at, in Brussels regarding um, the ban on Russian fuel, that's going to play a major role in how Irish consumers are going to be impacted in the couple, next couple of weeks too. And it's going to exacerbate the problem. Absolutely. And I think that um, the Taoiseach was very, you know, clear in, in saying that uh, today to warn people that your energy prices are going to increase um, as a result of this ban. And what the government needs to do next now is see on how they're going to shield consumers. Um, we have seen the €200 Euro energy rebate come in, but as a lot of people would say, simply not good enough. Um, more people have less money in their pockets, their bills are going up and there's no end in sight for people. And, this and you can see, I think, that people you know, are really feeling this and that people's grocery habits even uh, are changing and there's figures out to support that. Yeah, yeah, figures out by consultancy company, company Cantor today saying that um, the average uh, annual grocery is going to cost people an extra €330 Euro a year. And the report also shows the changes in consumer habits, which again is proves some for some negative reading. We see um, hot snacks, which would be health, uh, less healthier, such as frozen pizzas, um, are on the rise up 9%. Um, and there's actually figures showing that there has been a fall off in the number of times that a person is actually visiting their supermarket, which speaks for itself and backs up what we're hearing from the public, saying that we're actually going without some food and we're cho choosing between heating or eating. People trying to really make ends meet and, and struggling. And yet, despite all of this, we did also hear Pascal Donoghue out today and the Taoiseach out today, you know, reiterating reiterating that statement that, you know, there's been two billion in measures here. Uh, there will be further cost of living measures, but it won't be until budget 2023, which is October. Will they wait five months? Well, they said that on two separate occasions. And I think that they might have to give further consideration to that stance, given what has happened in Brussels regarding the changes and ban on Russian fuel, because, um, you know, the mini, they don't like to call it a mini budget, but it, it effectively was. It's actually not really helping people now. There was, you know, the energy credit and it's a once-off payment. There is cut and excise duty on fuel, but sure, we're seeing the, the diesel, price of diesel and petrol is touching two euro again at the petrol pumps. So it's not really, really having a knock-on effect for people. And um, I, I would imagine that they will have to give consideration to possibly bringing in some further measures before October. Um, Kevin McPartland, look, I know you're really conscious of not scaremongering um, and, you know, not making people, you know, overly worried or concerned about the price of fuel, but we are seeing, you know, uh, prices of the pumps getting close to two euro again. In fact, I think it's gone over two euro uh, in some four courts. How bad are prices going to get and how long is this going to last? Well, you're right, Kieran, if I might just take the chance, because you do say I don't want there to be any sort of scaremongering or panicking, to suggest that there is an inevitable fuel shortage is, is untrue. Um, I think there is a risk, and that risk has to be managed, and, and, and we're working hard to make sure that that is, <coughs> that, that is being done. 
to answer your question about how high prices can go, I don't know. And anybody who tells you that they do know is lying to you. Okay, apart from any concerns that the CCPC might have about what I might say on that, nobody knows. What I can tell you is that, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine had a massive impact on the day that it happened on fuel prices. And that impact has continued. It's got worse in some uh, 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 different times. The announcement of the um, sanctions in Brussels yesterday isn't of massive direct importance to Ireland because we never imported a lot of oil from Russia. Uh, there was but it very, affects the market. Exactly that. When you take one third of the entire supply of oil and gas, and the thing we have to recognise with the gas piece, there are countries in Europe that use gas for that use Russian gas for their electricity generation. They're not going to have that anymore, so they're going to divert to oil. So what that is going to do is increase the demand for oil at a time when the supply is going to be squeezed. And a junior economics student will tell you the result of that. Uh, but what are we looking at price-wise, do you think? I mean, there was one point, uh, I think, for Ronan um, Murphy, the independent today, was talking about, you know, €3.50 uh, a litre if there wasn't um, interventions. We had those interventions from the government only two months ago, and yet, look, here we are again today, over €2 Euro at, the, at, the, uh, at the pumps. Yeah, and, and I can't say what, what it will be. But what, but what I can say is that currently today, so, so Kira mentioned that you know, we, we, we're nudging on €2 Euro in some places for, for, for a, a litre of diesel. People who are paying €2 Euro for a litre of diesel are paying £0.86 cent in, in tax still. So despite the excise duty cut that happened back in March, £0.86 cent of that price per litre is going straight to the government. And I think it's time government needs to have a look at that. All right, well, let's try and get uh, some answers from government. Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, joins me from Government Buildings. Uh, Minister, you're welcome to the programme. Uh, first of all, let's look evening, at Kira. those uh, inflation figures. Only, I think, about six weeks ago, wasn't it, your government was saying 6.75% for the second quarter. That's what you were looking uh, at. That was the expectation. Uh, we're now at 8.2%. So is it rising quicker and faster than you had hoped? And are these prices becoming embedded? And is the outlook now more uncertain? Uh, good evening, Kira. It, it is the case that only last month we published the Stability Programme update, which essentially sets out the economic and fiscal forecasts for the country for the period ahead. And we did forecast that inflation would average at about six and a quarter percent across the year. Uh, certainly, in the past number of weeks, we have seen further uh, instability. We have seen uh, the terrible war in Ukraine have devastating consequences, first and foremost for the people of that country, uh, but also significant economic consequences, dislocation in the energy markets and problems in global supply chain uh, in respect to certain foods uh, and other materials. So uh, there is uncertainty in relation to the global economic outlook at this point in time. And I think we are going to be looking at elevated inflation uh, for quite some time yet, though we do expect that it will begin to moderate across the second half of next year. And we, we acknowledge as a government uh, the real problems that this is causing in the day-to-day -day lives of people. Uh, many people are struggling. Uh, that is why we brought forward a set of exceptional measures outside of the normal budgetary cycle. Uh, but we have to now make sure that, first of all, we can continue to fund those measures, such as the VAT reduction, the reduction in excise on fuel and so on, and that come budget time uh, that we have adequate resources uh, to support people uh, to the end of this year and through next year as well. And that is the priority for, of government. We were so to be clear, sorry, Minister, to cut across to you, um, yep. just to be clear, because people at home are, are panicking and people are worried, the message from the government is we've gone as far as we can 
There's been two billion on the table considering the budget of last year and the extraordinary measures you talked about. We've gone as far as we can for now. The next measures will be in October. So we have to continue to fund many of the measures that we've already introduced to make sure that they can continue uh, right through to October. And we do have to heed the advice of the Fiscal Advisory Council when they say to us that we have to strike a delicate balance between intervening and supporting people, which we, we have done, and we need to continue to fund those measures uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand not adding to inflation and not making the situation uh, any worse, because uh, we have to work our way through this. Uh, what we're doing right now uh, between myself, Minister Donoghue, our officials and colleagues across government is to agree what is the appropriate budgetary stance uh, going into the budget for 2023. Okay, and I do that want means deciding how much money should we be spending and we are engaging in dialogue with the social partners. We're involved in public sector pay negotiations as well. Uh, so we have to tie together all of those threads uh, in a way that gets us through a very challenging and difficult period of uncertainty uh, in relation to the global economy. Uh, and Minister, you did mention the um, Irish Fiscal Advisory Council today. They also said that there is some space for this government to target the poorer households. They said there is 2.5 billion in unallocated funds. So there is space for the government to move before October. Well, they weren't quite explicit that they meant before October. Uh, you have to recognise what we've already done, which I think is very significant and exceptional in nature to do outside of a normal budgetary cycle, and then to ensure uh, that we have adequate resources uh, to make a tangible difference across all of this year and indeed next year. Because the reality think, Minister, is, people we cannot are feeling assume... that tangible difference because that's not what we're hearing. I think. We have to be honest with people, Kira. It's not possible for any government in the developed world uh, to bring in measures that completely offset the impact of this terrible war. Uh, there will be an economic price for all of us to pay, unfortunately. Uh, it pales into insignificance compared to the humanitarian uh, price that the people of Ukraine are paying. Uh, but this is a level of inflation that has not been seen for 40 years. Uh, 12 of the 19 Eurozone countries have a level of inflation that is higher than Ireland's. So this is a global problem. Uh, we have to work our way through it uh, in a coordinated and an intelligent manner. We've brought in a series of initiatives to date. Our focus now is on making sure uh, that we have the right package and the right balance uh, in respect of the budget in October. And that will involve uh, discussions with the social partners at the National Economic Dialogue in three weeks' time, as well as ongoing discussions we're having with the trade unions uh, and the employer bodies. We do not want to make a difficult situation uh, any worse. And there is potential if governments make the wrong moves uh, it could contribute and actually compound the level of inflation that's there. Um, as you mentioned there your department is in the middle of these uh, public sector pay uh, talks given the inflationary environment that we are seeing given the fact that it's worse than perhaps we predicted even six weeks ago how far beyond the current pay terms are you willing to go? So we are involved in negotiations at the moment and we'll be using the services of the Workplace Relations Commission. Uh, this involves about 365,000 public servants who are represented by the Public Services Committee of Congress. Uh, from my perspective, I want to ensure that we have industrial peace. That's important uh, for Ireland and for our economy and also to have certainty about the public service pay bill. Uh, I've acknowledged there will be a need to go beyond the current pay terms of building momentum, but of course 
course, the detail of that uh, is a matter for the, the negotiations that are currently underway. We do need to ensure, Kira, that we secure the economic improvements uh, that have been achieved in recent times. We now have over two and a half million people at work in Ireland, which is more than the number we had in 2019 pre-COVID-19. It has exceeded all expectations, even in the economic recovery plan uh, that we brought forward last year as a government. So we have to make sure we protect competitiveness while at the same time doing all we can to safeguard the living standards of our people right. uh, at a time of extraordinary challenge and change across the world. Uh, Minister, you might just stay with us uh, a moment because I just want to go to the uh, panel here. Uh, Michael Healy-Ray, there we have now the Minister for Public Expenditure following uh, in the words of the Taoiseach and uh, the Minister for Finance today saying, you know, we have to strike a delicate balance. We cannot do more for people. No government in the Western world can. Well, that's simply not going to be good enough for the people and I will tell you why. Tonight on the way out here, I saw a litre of fuel at 2.08 cent per litre. I'd remind the minister that on the Tuesday night when the government brought down the price of a litre of fuel from 15 and 20 cents respectively, on the previous Monday and Sunday nights, it actually went up by more than 20 cents per litre. He, the government keep talking about the 200 euros and the ESB. Like, while it was very welcome, those measures were very, very small when it comes to impacting in a positive way on the people's purse. I've continuously said the most important uh, indicator that we have of public finance is a thing called mom's purse. It's what's inside in mom's purse on a Friday evening. And unfortunately, mom's purses get a fair battering at the moment. And the people are simply going to say now that it is not acceptable at this time for the government to be taking maybe over 65% of the cost of every litre of fuel. That's not acceptable. Uh, the government turning a blind eye to our energy security by telling us, because the Greens insisted on it, that we won't have a, 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 an LNG facility blown in Shannon LNG. That was a ridiculous and stupid measure for them to bring into the programme for government. In the previous programme for government, it was deemed that we should have a, an LNG facility okay. blown that. And then in this government, they've said no, just to pacify and 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 and, and cozy up to the Greens. The, those type of policies. And, and remember now, the minister is talking about trying to protect people. And a couple of weeks ago, they were inside the government and they're introducing more taxes, carbon taxes, and telling us, well, we have okay. to do this. Like the government are going to have to realise the pain, the hurt, and the suffering that people are doing have to go through at the moment. All right, and me, all they're trying to do is, all they're trying to do, Minister, and don't forget this, they're trying to do a thing called exist and live. And that is extremely difficult at present. All right, I want to let the Minister respond to that. Hey, good evening, Michael. I mean, the point I would make to you is that, you know, as a government, we have to balance all of the needs that are there. You will be the first person, along with many others in the Dáil, in the lead up to the budget, to look for more money for education, more money for roads, more money for healthcare, uh, more money for climate action measures and a whole range of other issues. So I have to make sure, along with Minister Donoghue, that we use taxpayers' money wisely. We absolutely recognise that many people are struggling at this time. That's why we did bring forward uh, those measures. But we have to make sure we manage the public finances responsibly. Uh, we're still going to have a deficit this year. That's the forecast. The cost of borrowing is rising for the country. Uh, so we have to bring the country through this period, support people in the best way we can. But to, to suggest that we can meet all needs and we can do everything and offset all of the increases as a result of the war in Ukraine is just not realistic or, in my view, is not being honest with people. And, and touching that 86 cents that uh, Kevin McPartland talked about, that that's the money that 
the government still takes um, from um, fuel at the pumps. Touching that is, is not realistic, is it not? So any further change in excise duty and all matters relating to taxation, Kira, will be uh, a matter for the budget and the finance bill. And, you know, that's something Minister Dunne, who will consider along with all of the other demands that he has okay. in relation to taxation. Uh, like we have to govern for the whole country. We have to ensure that we have the resources to meet all of the priorities, make sure we build houses for our people, uh, that we can reform and invest in healthcare. So we do have to ensure we strike that right balance. And I acknowledge it's a difficult one at the moment because a lot of people are hurting. Uh, but our first duty is to make sure we don't make the, situ make the situation any worse uh, and that we try to bring the country through uh, what is a challenging period. Uh, just very quickly before I let you go, Minister, uh, you're obviously um, in the middle of public sector pay talks. What should uh, private sector employers be doing at the moment? Well, private sector employers are engaging in their own negotiations with their workers and their trade unions. We have seen uh, a range of uh, different deals being done. Well, where they can afford to, uh, they should, and they are doing that. Many of them are paying um, increases that, that are affordable to them. But it's not for me to dictate to any private sector employer right. uh, the level of wage increase uh, that they should pay. Some cannot afford to, uh, many can, and those that can should. Okay. Uh, but we are uh, the government that employs 365,000 people, and that's where my focus is, to get a fair and affordable and a sustainable deal for everyone. All right, uh, Minister Michael McGrath, thank you for your time this evening. I'm just going to go back to the panel, uh, Mark because we did hear the Taoiseach saying uh, today, look, it's time to double down on renewables. He said we need to uh, accelerate wind farms. I mean, what's realistic, given the fact that I think wind farms aren't uh, expected to come on stream until 2027? Best case scenario is what? Yeah, but it's, it's interesting because Michael talked about fuel security and he talked about uh, LNG terminals. LNG terminals wouldn't be available to us except within the same type of time frame. And if anything, this crisis has really driven home the absolute need for us to move in the, in the direction of renewables. We already knew that there was a climate mandate that, that was pushing, pushing us in that direction. But beyond that, this is energy that we can produce at home. This is the shortest possible of supply lines. Not only that, but we can produce excess and export that to our European partners. So but I suppose we're just talking about, you know, in the short term. And if mm -hmm. the T-shirt is saying, look, we need to look at those um, wind energy farms and, you know, the 2027 figure is no longer acceptable, what is realistic? Yeah, absolutely. We need to accelerate the solar rollout, for example. We need more onshore wind. We did see um, a REST auction, which was promoting the rollout of solar. We need that in the shorter term. People are starting to see now the feed-in tariffs for their own microgeneration at home. This is all very welcome. But this is absolutely where we need to go in any case. And yet, I'm you know, thinking back to the, uh, an article I read on Sunday, I think in the Business Post, where um, the board and owner was saying, you know those energy targets that we have for 2030? Mm -hmm. The words, uh, I think um, he was a... John O'Reilly, the head of power generation, said, the government's deluded deluded if you think you can reach those targets by 2030? Well, I think we have to go after this in a radical and ambitious way. Nothing less than that is going to do the job. And I mean, I'm talking about that in terms of energy security, but I'm also talking about it in terms of climate. So that phrase... What do you mean by phrase, a radical way? Like in, in practical um, terms, what does that actually we mean? We have to go after it ambitiously. We have to throw everything that we possibly can at it. We're seeing that in terms of the maritime area planning framework, that we're really trying to move forward in terms of offshore wind. We're seeing it in terms of the, the removal of regulations in terms of how much solar you can install on your roof, the acceleration of things like feed-in tariffs. 
These are all parts of the energy equation. All right. And the IPCC told us that we have, I think the phrase was a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right, Kevin? I, I don't disagree at all. I, I, I think we do need to, to, to pursue... All of these renewables and, and, and our sector is definitely doing that. I think it's, you know, it's like when you, when you have a busy day at work and you're trying to prioritise, you have the urgent and you have the, emer- the, the important. What Mark's talking about is the important piece and what Michael's talking about is the urgent piece. We have to make sure that people can con- continue to have the life that they have now, tomorrow, next week and next month. And we have to be planning for the future where we're not dependent on fossil fuels. And, and, and that, that's where the, this contrast is. And I, 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 so how do we do that then? Well, I think what we have to do is make sure that people... We, I'll tell you how we do it. We've been talking about a just transition, OK? There's two words there, just and transition. Just, it must mean that people can live a decent life, can get to work, that businesses continue to trade, can export, can get their products to market, that the supermarket shelves are going to be full tomorrow. And it needs to be a transition. We have to move. Uh, sometimes when we talk about, you know, the ambition... You know, Eamon Ryan says that we have the most ambitious climate climate action targets in the world. That just means that no other government in the world thinks we can achieve them. We do need to have those those, uh, really stretching targets, but we have to recognise we have to take stepping stones. And there's a situation now where where we're only looking for the perfect answer, and the impossible perfect is the enemy of of the deliverable good. And there's deliverable good that can be done today, and we need to be doing that right now. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave that there uh, for now. My thanks to Kevin McPartland, Kira, Michael and Mark are going to be joining me after the break as we get the very latest on the Dublin airport chaos. Well, over the last 48 hours, any politician who would speak has said that the chaos at Dublin Airport last weekend should not happen again. But today, Minister for Transport Eamon Ryan says he has been told that the DAA cannot guarantee that. This demand continues to increase. 
and the airport's having difficulty getting their supply of staff up to match it. How do we manage that? And lastly, how do they compensate the 1,400 um, people who did lose their flights and had huge inconvenience caused? So that's what we discussed. They said they cannot guarantee what they have to. What we said is you have to do absolutely everything in your power. Government will do everything to, to uh, support so we don't see those scenes again. Kira Phelan, Marco Kahasik, and Michael Healy Ray are still with me at Kira. And um, we heard Minister Hildegard Naughton and we heard the Dublin Airport Authority say yesterday, sort of with some confidence, there is a plan, and that that plan was going to be in the minister's desk first thing this morning. We could all be reassured. Where is the plan? Is anybody reassured at this point? No, and there is no plan. No plan was provided this morning and it was a discussion that took place between senior airport management and um, Minister Hildegard Nocton and Minister Eamon Ryan. And actually, I was at the briefing at the Cabinet walk-in with Minister Ryan and um, was actually in response to a question that I put to him and all of the political correspondents there were really struck that he'd come out and said, well, actually, they didn't give us a guarantee that this situation wouldn't happen again. So at the meeting today... Um, senior air, airport officials have been told, well, Wednesday morning, now you have to give us a plan on how you're actually going to communicate to the public ahead of the bank holiday weekend and into the summer, how we won't see this again. Um, now, Dalton Phillips, he's CEO of um, the DAA, he's to appear before the Transport Committee tomorrow around 1.30, where without doubt he's going to face an absolute grilling from TDs and senators. Um, it's, it, it dominated leaders' questions as well today, so that'll give you an idea when it takes precinct over housing and healthcare. And um, as before we came on air, he, I understand it had yet to send the opening statement to TDs and senators. They may have it now while you're on air, but that just goes to show, I suppose, that the pressure that he may be feeling tomorrow. That's because we haven't heard from him yet. We haven't heard from him yet, and I do know, um, you know, there was reports in the Daily Star and the Irish Mirror that they had made uh, efforts to contact him and for an interview, but he declined to do so. Um, but I mean, I think the fact that there was no plan on the table, despite it being asked of senior airport officials, says a lot that chaos may ensue again in the coming days. They discussed about, you know, uh, making sure that all the security lanes were open and operation at peak times. Um, but I think the issue is staff and recruitment. And I know there was issues raised earlier um, by opposition TDs, Richard Boybart in particular, speaking about um, the contracts um, that were provided to people. So I don't know how they're going to recruit and vet people to get them on the floor um, and boots on the ground at Dublin Airport within a number of days. And bear in mind, secondary schools are finishing on the 3rd of June and the June Bank holiday is coming up. So what we witness at the weekend, I'd say it's only going to get worse. And the truth of the matter is that every single person who's due to fly out of Dublin Airport, whether it's this weekend, next week, or the next couple of weeks, is thinking, well, I change my flights. Do I go? Do I go the night before? Do I arrive four, six, eight hours before the <coughs> flight? I mean, it's only going to make the problem worse. Yeah, and I, I like I had a quick look um, on Ryanair and Aer Lingus, a number of other um, airports air, on a number, number of airlines, and it's actually quite expensive to fly out of those airports as well. I suppose uh, last minute as well changes. So like people don't have. We're only talking about inflation and the cost of living. I don't think people have the disposable income to go staying in the airport overnight. Um, I think it's a desperate situation for any families that have kids to actually have to haul kids into the airport to queue for hours. Not a man. Not not many food options um, available and to hope that they get on a flight. Even some couples queued for four hours and yet didn't make their flight. 
So um, I, I, it, it <coughs> remains to be seen what's going to happen in the coming days. Well, apparently we'll find out a lot more tomorrow afternoon when that uh, plan is published and we'll keep you up to date on that. Well, Cabinet today also heard proposals designed to help post offices. They're proposing a levy of €12,000 a year to postmasters. There are around 900 post offices in the country. The vast majority of them run independently by uh, postmasters. Michael Healy-Ray, among your various businesses, you also... Um, have a post office, you're a postmaster. Do you need 12,000 euro to make that viable? No, well, today, for example, myself uh, and Matthew McGrath, the Rural Independent Group, we had uh, Tom O'Callaghan, uh, who's from the Independent Postmasters of Ireland. He came to visit us to give a very excellent presentation about exactly where we are, where we should mm -hmm. be going. Uh, this on the face of it, looks very good. Politically, it sounds great. Oh, we're going to give this money to post offices. But what it is, is it's a sticking plaster on a very big wound. You see, this is the trick to all of this. We never said, oh, here we are with our hands out, we want money. We're not looking for money in that way, a subvention. What we're looking for is the opportunity to earn our own money. Because just to explain it, a post office gets paid <clears throat> on a per transaction. So if you go into your local post office and buy a stamp, collect your pension, lodge money, withdraw money, that's a transaction. You, you get so many cent per transaction. That's how you live. That's how the post office stays alive. But what's wrong now is there are over 700 post offices because they're, they went on a contract which is not too good and it's going to cause trouble for them. And when that time is coming up in the next couple of months, there's an awful lot of more post offices going to face closure. So what we're asking the government is not, we're not looking for handouts. What we want is the opportunity to have more business. So you don't Direct, want the 12,000 no, no, As what, a postmaster, no, you'll say, no, no I don't what, need that? What, uh, what we're saying is, that we want the work, we want business to make ourselves viable going to the future. That, that this talk about 12,000, that we'll get 1,000 euros a month, that's, believe it or not, that is not going to solve the pr problem. But for instance, is it okay, if we, but is if it we could... Is it because it's not enough? Do they no, need more no, than 12,000 no. If we month? could have the one thing that we were looking for all along, the model of the Kiwi Bank, mm. that we would have our own community bank where the profit would stay in local communities and the people are crying out for a friendly, uh, normal bank that they can go into where they'll be dealing with the local okay. postmaster or postmistress. That's what people really want. All right, but we want, want the Mark government to make here, that happen. Mark, you're nodding your head. You actually agree with Michael Hillary in this, do you? That yeah. That isn't uh, the answer? Uh, not in that regard. The 12,000 or, or whatever figures have been reported in the media because it hasn't been announced fully, of course, is breathing space. It's breathing space for, and I've engaged with the Postmasters Union and, and several of my local postmasters, it's breathing space to do exactly the type of thing that Michael is talking about. And that's to drive footfall into our local post office network, an extremely important network. I mean, there's 900 post offices nationwide. 52% plus of those are more than five kilometres away from whatever the local banking option is. I absolutely want to move in the direction. Michael talks about Kiwi Bank. Our own public banking policy talks about Sparkasa. It's the exact same type of thing. It's providing community banking where you're talking about... Okay, so reinvigorate the whole service. Yeah, and yes. get, a, get, get, get the profits to the stakeholders rather than the shareholders. Keep money within communities. All right, I'm so just, I agree with a lot of what Michael said in that. I suppose conscious, Kira, that this is the first time that uh, any government would sort of give direct subvention to the post offices to literally keep the doors open. Is there 
any fear in government uh, about this issue in rural Ireland and perhaps you know, losing some of that rural Ireland vote? Because we did see that Red Sea poll, didn't we? And it showed that uh, Sinn Féin are growing in rural Ireland, which is worrying for government. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like uh, Mark is calling it breathing, breathing space, but without doubt they're saying this as, you know, oh, maybe this will, you know, make sure we do get a few votes in rural Ireland. They're looking after the post offices. But the truth of the matter is that a couple of weeks ago we were having the discussion about the turf war and, uh, you know, opposition TDs were slamming uh, the government and members of the public in rural Ireland were saying this can't go ahead, the proposed ban on the commercial sale of turf and the cause of uproar. slamming the Green Party. Yeah, big time. And Eamon Ryan, came in, Eamon Ryan came in for some fierce scrutiny, I'd say, probably the worst that he has since um, he went into coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and... Like, you know, obviously a lot of postmasters will be happy to hear about this proposal that went to Cabinet. Hildegard Nocton is to announce it tomorrow. Um, but yeah, like, I definitely believe that they're hoping that they will secure some rural votes. Um, I, I think Fine Gael really realised that um, there is an issue there. And uh, we saw the intervention from Tawn Shalio-Vragker that time from uh, on the turf floor uh, at the PP meeting that Eamon Ryan was completely uh, blinded to when he spoke about a pause on the proposed commercial, uh, the proposed ban. So, you know, this is possibly another element that they're saying if we push this out now, that it would uh, get some support for us. Yeah, because Mark, you know, there's 12 green TDs in um, in, in Dáil Éireann. Eight of them are from Dublin. And I think there probably is a perception in parts of rural Ireland that the Green Party quite simply, don't understand them. Well, uh, first of all, I'm not one of those. I'm from Waterford and, and delighted to represent that constituency. Also, eight of them are elected out of Dublin, but, for example, Minister Joe O'Brien, he's from Cork. Uh, Minister Catherine Martin, she's a Monaghan woman. So th- there's a lot of actual rural voices within the Green Party, even those elected you from Dublin. You wouldn't realise it. But can I just say one thing in terms of Kira? I do... I do get where she's coming from in terms of is this vote-getting measure? Well, first of all, our public banking policy in the Green Party predates this crisis. We've been driving towards this for a long time. And I'm much more motivated, yeah. actually, by the communities like Kilmac, Thomas and Waterford that okay. need this facility available within their town and community. So there you go, Michael Hillary. The Green Party do understand rural Ireland. You must be joking. I'll tell Michael, you... I'm from rural no, Ireland. I, I didn't interrupt you. You have no monopoly on it. I, I didn't interrupt you. I, but I, would, I will interrupt what, you. Well, I, keep at it. Yes, I will get indeed. On. But uh, I'm from you, rural what, Ireland. But I'll tell you, Kira, about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. I'll tell them about rural Ireland. They've lost it already. Because when they went attacking the people that go out and save turf and want to have it for themselves and sell it. Don't mind the Green Party in rural Ireland. They never had it to lose it. But what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael had, they're quickly realising, you saw the result of the Red Sea uh, uh, poll, poll, where the combined efforts of Fianna Fáil and uh, Fine Gael have been surpassed by Sinn Féin. Who would have thought in 1997 when Sinn Féin had one seat in, 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 in the Dáil that they would be where they are today? And what I have to say to these parties, including the Greens, of course, is you can't turn the people of rural Ireland against you in the way that you have done and think that you'll get All away right, with just it. Say, you back and you won't get away yeah, with and it. I want to respond and you'll get to that an answer. because the we Greens were talking about turf. The we're talking about the, the turf. The Greens got the answer in the north. We're All talking right, about the turf. Yeah. And what's that? That's part of a clean air strategy. I feel very badly for people in Enniscorthy. Very right. little turf burnt in that community. But the air quality okay. in, in Enniscorthy means that we have higher instances of asthma, of right. stroke, uh, of COPD, I, 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 
And don't think we quite have time, sorry, uh, Deputy, to get back into the turf debate here. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, but my thanks uh, to um, Kira, Mark and Michael. Uh, we have to leave it there. We have lots more after the break, including the mental health crisis in the travelling community that was laid bare at the gates of the Dáil today. Members of the traveller community are demanding government action over the mental health crisis engulfing their population. Protesters from the community took to the streets outside the Dáil, demanding urgent action from the government. People are hanging on there, trying to stay alive. And uh, we're in despair. We're living in despair. And that's the sad reality that we have to face on a daily basis. You know, burying people through suicide actually has become the norm for my community, which is a sad reality of our existence in itself. Uh, 29 members of my family died through suicide uh, in the last 10 years. Well, I'm joined in studio by Independent Senator Eileen Flynn and Thomas McCann, Director of the Traveller Counselling Service and a member of the National Traveller Mental Health Network. You're both very welcome uh, to the programme. Uh, Thomas, I want to start with you. Um, mm. To hear Max Casey there, uh, the lady speaking in that Vox, saying that 29 members yeah. of her family have died by suicide in the last 10 years alone, that's absolutely shocking. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, like you can imagine the trauma that that's caused for the family. I mean, 29 members of your family. And like there's other families across Ireland, other traveller families, who's lost multiple members of the family as well in different parts of the country. You know, and like this issue has been going on for quite a long time where successive governments have failed the traveller community time and time again. And like successive uh, uh, ministers of health and mental health uh, have made promises and there's been reports, there's been task forces, there's been advisory groups and traveller activists and traveller uh, uh, community workers across the state has engaged with the government yet really in terms of implementation of these and like I mean if you look at the vision for change I was yeah. mentioning it earlier on 2006 you know nothing's happened how common though is is Mags a story well the extent of Mags's loss is is absolutely it's just kind of beyond what any you know like you can't you know quantify the extent of the loss so like um, I don't know of any other member of the traveler community who's lost so many members of but the it family. has touched so many members of the travelling community, uh, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Around 90% of travellers is affected by suicide, either, either in their immediate family or their extended family. So you can, you know, so it's across Ireland. If you go into any room of travellers and you ask who's been uh, affected by suicide in the room, 90% of people in the room will stick up their hands. Yeah, Eileen, is that your experience? Yeah, uh, even on um, the Halton site that I uh, live in, we've experienced people uh, dying by uh, suicide, unfortunately, and um, as cousins of my own dying by suicide. There was a time that there was a lot of stigma that came with uh, suicide and mental health uh, issues within uh, our community. And, you know, all those... Uh, 
now the traveller community is more openly spoken around mental health because we have to be, you know, because it's on our doorstep. We see it constantly. And while we talk about suicide here this evening, we also have to remember the different other levels of mental health crisis that we're talking about. We're talking about uh, people who, who, are, who have uh, schizophrenia, people with uh, uh, anxiety, depression, etc. you know. And it's basic human rights and basic services for, for, for people with in our community and to be very very blunt you know for the last two years that I've been a sitting senator I've called and along with the National Mental Health uh, Network and of course it's with the National and the National Mental Health Network is made up of all the national NGOs mm -hmm. and also some of the local organisations it's a collective network that people came together uh, in about around 10 years ago to be honest and basically we, we want to bring an end to the mental health crisis and of course of course, we understand there's uh, issues within our community like the unemployment rate, uh, not having equal access to education, uh, uh, etc. And all those uh, inequalities can actually play a part in your mental health. And for myself, even and do you my think it is? Uh, Eileen playing a part because obviously the first yeah. thing people have to do is try and understand mm. uh, why the rates are so high, why mm. they are disproportionately high mm. uh, in your community. Yeah, of course but uh, but again we could sit here all night and look at the, the inequalities and when I speak about issues within our community, it's not that the traveller community is the issue, it's society like you know, we've always existed on the island of Ireland and like to be still so ill-treated within Irish society. And, like, it's beyond now. Like, I'm two years sitting in in, uh, in, in the Shannon and the network have asked for, for basic human rights and I see it in accommodation, education. And we have... AE4 recommendations that, that the organisations come up with, individuals within our community uh, come up with 84 recommend, uh, recommendations. And as, as sure as I'm sitting in this seat, I guarantee you I could be back here in two years' time without any of those recommendations, even from the Special Traveller Committee, uh, to be implemented. We have good um, we have good policies, we have good uh, recommendations, and fortunately, it, they're not implemented. Why are they not implemented? Implemented, Thomas. Why do yeah. you think that's happening? Yeah, and I just want to say, like, like if you look, at, if you look, uh, you know, back at, at you know, kind of um, why the situation is as it is today, the government policy has created the conditions that travellers are in today. If you look back at 1963, which which identified in its report, and if people want to have a look at that report, at that stage, I'm sure there was mental health difficulties, but we had nothing like we have now. Even though the conditions that travellers lived in were very poor and very, you know, but there was a certain a kind of, you know, uh, uh, the government brought in policies in 1963 that kind of was forced to assimilate. It was assimilation policies that where every arm of the state was used to kind of eradicate traveller culture. And I think that had a detrimental effect. And that's still the mindset of kind of uh, seeing travellers as kind of failed, settled people who needed to be rehabilitated. And so that process, that mindset hasn't really shifted that much, I don't think. If you look at the trespass, anti-trespass legislation, which should be called anti-traveller legislation, really, because it hasn't been used in anybody else since it was introduced. And uh, I think it's unconstitutional. And if there was a, uh, the constitutional lawyer anywhere listening to this programme, I'd ask them to examine it because you have only 48 hours to mount a defence, which I think is unconstitutional. And you think all of these issues 
are exacerbating the, the problems. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at if you look at is there is there a stigma though? Because you did mention yeah. stigma, um, uh, Eileen. Is there not a, is there stigma still within the community about speaking out about your uh, mental health and going and getting help? And is the help available? Yeah, um, well. You know, if you go because you've just mentioned there is a specific traveller counselling um, service that you run. There is, but just just on that, like I mean, uh, just, as I said, you know, kind of what the two things is that there's a whole lot of um, uh, programs to get people to overcome the stigma and talk about it. But what? But when people come to uh, look for mental health services and indeed other services, they they need to be there to be. They need to be met with proper services. They need to be accessible. Okay, Eileen, give you the last. Yeah, word. there need to be cultural appropriate services. Yeah. And what, what does that mean? It, what that means is meeting the traveller person where they're at and not just seeing the, the whole community and not to be uh, judgmental when it comes to counselling uh, service. You know, uh, Care, from my own experience of having postnatal depression, me, myself, I know how hard it is to reach out, you know, and that's for many travellers because, you know, it's you only seem to, as, uh, as, as, as the traveller. And I do know that Minister Butler is looking at in, including the travellers, uh, the traveller action plan into uh, sharing the vision. Now, vision for change okay. didn't, uh, didn't change anything for our community. We want a standalone um, mental health strategy for the traveller community and somebody needs to be held accountable for not, uh, for not implementing. All right. Thanks. Uh, look, I'm going to have to leave it there. Eileen yeah. Thomas, thank you for your time. Just to let you know uh, there's helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. But that's it from us. Take care. Bye-bye. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.